Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. We're going to dive in today into this first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, the the gospel of Matthew, as he's setting up the Christmas story, okay? Now, this is a really fascinating, kind of almost peculiar way to start the first book of the New Testament, to introduce the Messiah, to introduce the Christ child, the Son of God, is he begins with a genealogy, okay? And here it is, right? It's very long, and if you're anything like me for years, I mean, this is probably wrong for a pastor to admit this, I skip over all this and get down to the action, okay? All the begats, my goodness, you get worn out before you ever get to Jesus. It's like, this is a lot of information here. But here's what I want us to ask today, because I think there's a really, really good answer to this question. What do these genealogies tell us about the origin story of Christmas? And and maybe even broader and more important about Christianity itself. Because there's some powerful things that are being said by Matthew here. There's another genealogy given over in Luke. And in in both of these genealogies, they're telling us something really powerful, something really important. And specifically in Matthew's gospel, they're saying something powerful and they're implying. It's what they don't say, too. There's some implied things that are incredibly powerful. We're going to look at those today. And the reason why this is so important for us to understand the way in which this is written and the intent of its writing is because right down to this day, there are many, many people that look at the Christmas story and say, that is a really wonderful legend. It's a really wonderful fable. It is a metaphor. It's a great lesson for life. This is a great place where you can get, you know, a moral to the story, kind of a a moment. You can kind of learn a lesson. You can pull away some really good advice for your life. And, um, and though the Bible certainly gives us wisdom for life, but there is so much more than that going on here. And it's important for us to understand the intent by which it was written. The problem with bringing the legend and fable approach to the New Testament, it is that is not the intent or that was not the way in which the New Testament writers wrote their accounts. So we have to kind of take a closer look at that that the way in which they wrote their accounts wasn't this is a you know once upon a time in a galaxy far far away that is that's not how they did it as a matter of fact by Matthew breaking onto the scene with a genealogy he's saying that everything that Jesus was and is and what he did is all grounded and rooted in history this is not a fable this is not a legend. He really lived. He really did this stuff. Like, I know it's amazing. It seems fantastical, like these miracles and all this stuff he did. I get it. I feel the same way. And if I hadn't been an eyewitness to what happened, I would probably question that it all happened too. But it wasn't just me. It was like hundreds and thousands of other people. And I just was one of the few, one of the four, the four first Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are the accounts of Jesus' life and work and what he said, what he did, what he taught, how he grew up. And, and it's beautiful because it gives us eyewitness testimony. So, yes, we can ascertain and pull from these stories 
um, lessons for our life, certainly. But we, under, we need to understand first and foremost that it wasn't necessarily an originally and initially written just for you to get good advice from, but that it was rather written for you to understand that it was news to be reported. Let me talk about the difference for a second. Because there was different ways in which people would write back in the first century. First would be maybe advice. It's like it is a Aesop's fable. It is a moral to the story is. And even Jesus taught like this. Didn't he use parables? Certainly he did. He used parables to teach us things about God and about ourself. And it was a powerful lesson to be learned. But that is not the way in which Matthew is recording the story. He's telling us this is not advice This is news. This is not just a moral to the story is. This is, I am writing down what historically actually happened. So let's talk about the difference between advice and news. First of all, advice. Let's take a look at the definition for advice. Advice is is counsel about what you should do, right? Here's what you should do. And news is a report about what has already happened, what's already taken place. In other words, advice is urging you to take action. Here's what you need to do. Go out and do it. Advice, or pardon me, news rather, is saying, I want you to, is urging you to recognize this is what's already happened. Now it demands and needs a response from you. You need to do something in light of this news. Really important to understand the difference and the distinction because the way in which the New Testament writers wrote was news for us. They were reporting what happened. Now, let me give you an illustration to kind of help put it into context. Let's imagine for a moment, all of us in this room, we formed a little village, a little town. Let's say our town was called Arendelle from the Frozen movies, okay? (laughs) We were the little town, and um, and we found out there is an invading army. They're coming. Like, they're going to come invade us. They're going to they're fight us for our land and take away our stuff. And so, like, what do we need as a town in that moment? Because, like, we're really good at choreographed singing and dancing, but we're not so good at fighting, right? Because we're Arendelle. So what do we need in that moment? We need a military advisor. We need somebody that knows how to fight that will show up and say, okay, people, let's get organized. Uh, I need you to put your tanks down here, put your snipers up there, build trenches through here, put your fortifications, like somebody that knows what's going on and how to defend our land and to help take care of us, right? But let's say that the impending danger, the doom, the, the, here comes the uh, outside invaders, and there's a great king that intercepts the invader and he conquers them. He runs them off, and they're gone now. Now what do we need as a town? We no longer need advisors. We need messengers. We need somebody to come into the middle of the town square and say, I bring you glad tidings of great news that you don't have to stop trying to to save yourself. Stop trying to defend yourself. It's okay. The great king has won the battle for you. You're free. You're, 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 you're no longer, there's no danger. There's no doom. You're like, it's okay. And what we need in that moment is messengers. Here's the interesting thing. Messengers, the word messenger comes from the Greek root angelos, where we get our word angel from. And I want you to see, this is exactly what God did at the birth of the Son of God, what he did at the birth of Jesus. He sends 
angelos, messengers, angels we would call them, to come and announce something great has happened. Here's what's fascinating, though. They didn't send angels to just anybody. The first people who get the visit from the angels about announcing the birth of Jesus are the shepherds. They were the most outcast section of society. I know to us, you're thinking, man, they were really mean to those poor shepherds. Well, back then, they were considered unclean, unholy, unwelcome in the temple. They weren't even allowed to worship God in the Jewish temple, which was ironic because they were raising the very sheep that were brought into the temple and sacrificed for the sins of all of Israel, but they weren't allowed in, but their sheep were. Now, here's the beautiful thing, that the Lamb of God comes first and announces to them that the Lamb of God is here and is on the scene, and He comes in the form of his angel, and his angel comes as a messenger, and he says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, and I'd like you to read the highlighted words with me. Here's what he said. He says, I bring you good news, right? Like the best kind of news that, that will bring great joy to what people? To all people. It's important that they understood this. This wasn't just for the Jewish people. This was for the Gentile, the non-Jewish. This was for everybody, all ethnos, God so loved the whole world, all ethnos, all people. This is good news for every, everybody. A messenger has shown up saying, you don't have to save yourself because you can't anyway, as we talked about that last week. It's impossible. You can't keep all the rules and all the laws. There's no way you can do this. But good news is that God has intercepted the enemy. He's defeated him. He's conquered him. And you can be saved through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what, ladies and gentlemen, stands Christianity apart from every other world religion. You see, the Christmas story, the Christmas origin story, it shows us that Christianity is not just good advice, although it can offer some good advice, but more importantly, it is good News. It is about something that has already taken place that demands a response from you and me that should change the way we live. And that is what Matthew is saying explicitly through this genealogy. He's showing us this is grounded in history among actual people that really lived, and these are actual events. Now, the question is what is Matthew not saying? In other words, what is being implied? through this genealogy, because there's lots of stuff going on here. Now, one thing you need to understand is that their culture back in the first century was very, very different from ours today. See, we live in an individualistic culture where we have to recommend ourselves. We write resumes, we promote ourselves. We have to get jobs this way. I mean, it's just kind of part of how our society is made. You got to put your education, your degrees, your work experience, your accolades or accomplishments on there. You have to kind of promote yourself. It was really different back in a communal, communal, family-oriented first century, um, um, you know, culture that in which Matthew wrote. Back then, your genealogy was your resume. Your genealogy told the world, this is who I am, and these are my people from which I have come. It said more about you than nearly anything else they could tell you about. And this is why it was so important to be understood, uh, your, 
you were part and parcel to your people in the land that they came from, and you need to understand your family story, and it was so incredibly important back then, and, and, and it, was, it was really powerful, and this is why he begins with this. But just like resumes, you know how people like to doctor up resumes? They tinker with them a little bit. I know y'all have never done that, but people sometimes try to use the resume to make themselves look good. You know, you leave off certain job experiences that were not good experiences, and you leave off you know, you know, only references of people that are going to be like, oh yeah, she's amazing. Like, she's incredible. Like, he's the best employee I've ever had. Those are the references you want, right? You don't want the other guys like, eh, he was okay. You know, like, Take it or leave it. Yeah, and so you always are looking for the best way in which to put yourself in the best light. Well, this is exactly what happened back in that first century culture. As a matter of fact, it was a well-known fact that King Herod did this often, that he would purge names from his public genealogy register. People that made him look bad or he didn't wasn't real keen on their backstory, he didn't want to be aligned with or connected to, he'd get rid of them so he would look better. But it wasn't just him. There were so many people that did this. This was kind of commonplace back in the first century. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what makes Matthew's gospel and his genealogy of Jesus so beautifully unique and almost ironic, the way in which he writes it. Because Matthew does just the opposite. It's like the boy is going way out of his way to tell crazy, outlandish stories about Jesus' past family members. It's kind of amazing. It's like looking through an old album book going, whoa, what's going on? This looks controversial. What was that all about? And who is this? And my goodness, how did this get in your, your photo album? You know, And that's kind of what he's doing. He's saying, let's open up the photo album of Jesus and the Jewish people. And let me share with you some things that you're probably going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that's in there. As a matter of fact, one of the first things that you will notice, and again, you have to look at this through the lens of that first century community and culture, is that he names five women. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to us today, but back then in a patriarchal, ancient society, that women were almost never named in these genealogies. I mean, rarely did you ever see a female's name. I'm sorry, ladies. That's how it was back then. Not that way anymore, but that's how it was. And he doesn't name one. He names five of these women. Here's what's really interesting, that out of the five, three of them are not even Jewish. They're Gentile. They're considered unclean, unholy, unwelcome in the temple of God among the Jewish people. And he's including these women in the genealogy. Let's take a look at a few of these and begin to look at what might he be saying through these things or what is implied and what, maybe what he's not saying in him listing these women's name, okay? Let's start with verse 3 of, of Matthew chapter 1. He says this, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, okay? And if you know something about this story, Tamar was famous for tricking her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her so that she could have children that she wasn't going to have any other way. She was desperate for heirs, and this is how she, and she dressed up like a shrine prostitute, which doesn't make Judah look so good. He pays her to sleep with her, and then he gets her pregnant. He doesn't know it's her. Later, she lets him know, but he, but to full disclosure of the story, and I encourage you to go back, and some of you are like, man, I'm going to start reading my Bible more. Genesis chapter 38, the whole story is there. 
she tricks him, and he'd been unfair to her because he says, I see that you, my son, your husband, has died. Here's what I'm going to do. When my son Shelah is old enough, you can marry him. But then he never made good on his promise. He lied to her. So she was desperate. And she does this thing. And they have these children, these two boys, Perez and Zara, together. Folks, I mean, it doesn't take, you know, a, a theologian to tell you, that's incest. That is clearly against the law of God. But yet there they are, like the most dysfunctional family ever, right? And Jesus came from them. Wow, that's kind of amazing, isn't it? And as we skip down a couple of verses to verse 5, he brings up another female story right here. He says, Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Rahab got to be arguably one of the most fascinating people in this entire genealogy. Okay, this woman was quite extraordinary. When she breaks onto the pages of history uh, in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 2, by the way, if you want to read her story, she's a Canaanite prostitute, all right? And so these spies from Israel, these Israelite spies come into the city of Jericho and they're scouting out the land before they come and infiltrate and they attack the city. They're coming in. And so they're about to get found out and Rahab hides them in her home, her brothel, in her place of business. Yes. And she, she hides the guys in there and she lets them sleep on top of the roof. They're out there all night. She lies and, and sends the, the guards and the soldiers away so that they could live. And then she helps them escape. And she, while they're there, places faith in the God of Israel. And she says, because I've shown mercy and grace to you, I'm asking, would you please show mercy and grace to me and my family? They said, okay, tie a scarlet um, scarf around the front of your house and when we attack the city, tell your family, do not go out in the street. If they go out in the street, the blood's on their head. And these men said, we will be men of our word, and we're going to keep our word, and we will protect you and your family. And they did just that. And she wound up marrying a strapping military boy by the name of Solomon. And they had this beautiful child, Boaz, which later winds up marrying Ruth, who is also a non-Jew, a Gentile. It's an interesting story, but through all of this, you see God take somebody who was a way outsider that no one would have ever expected would ever even be a part of the Jewish clan, and God brings her and puts her smack dab in the middle of the lineage to the Messiah himself. Amazing. And then we see in the very next verse, verse 6, that he begins to unpack this beautiful story about Jesse. He says this, and Jesse, the father of King David, okay, finally, there's some royalty. That'll make Jesus look really good, right? Finally, we've got somebody imported that's not got a sordid, nasty, and immoral past, right? And he says, Jesse, the father of King David, David, who is the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, that doesn't sound good at all. He doesn't even say her name. Now, to a Jewish audience, they would go, wow, he didn't say her name, but the way in which he phrased it, it brings the whole story back up. Didn't call her Bathsheba. Everybody knew her name, Bathsheba. No, he calls her Uriah's wife. So this harkens a story to the Jewish community that they would have to go back and remember the story of Uriah the Hittite. But let me give you that story real quick. All the way back, before there was a David and Bathsheba, years before that, 
David, as a young military officer, was having incredible success militarily. So much so, people were starting to write songs about the boy. I mean, it was on the local radio stations. You know, King Saul has his thousands, but David's got his ten thousands that he's slain. He is awesome. He's incredible. He's beautiful. He's hunky. He's on the front of the magazines. Like, they were so crazy about David. This made King Saul insanely jealous. And he says, I think I've had enough of that boy. I want him dead. So he decides, I'm going to kill him. David runs as you might imagine, runs out into the wilderness and hides. And during this time, there was a group of elite military fighting officers, kind of like Navy SEALs, that went out there and found David, and they said, bro, we're going to be a band of brothers that are going to keep you alive. We're going to stay out here with you. We're going to protect you. We're going to love you. They, were, they came to be known as David's mighty men. You can read about them in 2 Samuel chapter 23, unbelievable fighting men, incredibly gifted of God, incredible, uh, just uh, remarkable men all around. Well, one of those men was Uriah the Hittite. He was like a Marcus Luttrell of his day, all right? It was like, don't mess with that guy. He survived everything. He's, he's fought everybody. You know, like, it was unbelievable. And so, he, they get David out. Eventually, David makes it out of the wilderness, and fast forward several years into the future, David now is the king over all of Israel. And he's in power, and they're uh, about to go to battle against the Ammonites this time. So he sends all of his troops out against the Ammonites, and Uriah is among them. And they go out, and they're having great uh, military campaigns of success. But during that time while they're away, David, instead of going with them, he normally would, he stays back. And he's sleeping in, and he's just kind of, you know, lounging around the palace. And one afternoon when it's nice and warm and all the cisterns that hold the, the rainwater on top of the houses are nice and warm, this was the time of the day, he knew this, when the women would go up and bathe on top of their roofs. I mean, when everything is one story, you can go on your roof and have complete privacy. Unless... The king is out on top of his palace that can look down on everybody else's um, houses, and he's starting to browse around. It's the equivalent to somebody kind of on the internet saying, I think I'll just look a little pornography here, all right? I think I'll just kind of, oh, what's the harm? I'm going to look at a couple. Oh, look at her. She's bathing over there. Look at her over there. And then he's like, whoa, who is she? Bathsheba. Bathsheba taking a bath. What is that? That's kind of ironic. Wow. Well, I tell you what, I think you need to invite Bathsheba to come have dinner with the king tonight. Well, she's married, sir. I told you, boy, to go get her. Now, I'm telling you, this is an interesting fact that I just found out recently. If she had rejected the king, back in that culture, she could have been killed. She had to say yes. She had to come to the palace, and she had dinner with him, and they had an affair with Uriah the Hittite's wife. He gets her pregnant, and when he finds out that she's pregnant... He's like, I think I'm going to marry you. But, you know, this is going to kind of look bad because Uriah is kind of one of my buddies. So he tells Joab, the military leader out there, I want you to make it look like an accident, but have Uriah killed on the battlefield. In other words, he orchestrates the murder of one of his closest comrades, a man who has risked his life, put his neck on the line again and again for his king to take his woman away from him. This is David's story, right? God forgives him later, reinstates him. There's a whole backstory to it. 
And this is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, this whole story of David and Bathsheba. But I want you to see here today that time and again, all through these genealogies, Matthew is showing us people after people that were faulty, they were immoral, they were broken, they were imperfect people. They were, they were from kings and paupers. They were adulterers and adulteresses. There was incestuous relationships. There was prostitutes. There were all kinds of people. And all of these people, which the law that was given to Moses would say, they are unclean, unfit, unwelcome in the temple of God. Yet, God put them in this story. So the question we have to ask is, what do these stories mean to us today? Why on earth are these people in here? Why are these stories here? And to the Jewish people, they would have recalled all these backstories, some of the most nasty, sordid, immoral, controversial stories in Israel's history are, are, are included, implied in this genealogy. In other words, what Matthew is implying here and what these stories mean to us is this. All people can be brought into Jesus' family. All people. I hope you hear this today. All people. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter. What he calls us to do, Jesus says, is to repent, which means to an about face, to turn away from sin and, and pursuing what we want. Our ego, our pride, what we think is going to make us happy, and turn to God and say, God, you created us. You made us. You know what's best. We trust you. We trust you. Is to repent, turn to Jesus, to trust and to place belief in Jesus, and his grace will cover over our sin, and he will bring us into his family. It's amazing that he is willing to do this. In other words, <clears throat> before Jesus, we all have equal standing before God because of what Jesus did on our behalf. That we all come equally lost, we all come equally sinful, we all come and we're willing to confess, we're willing to believe. He says, you all will be accepted and loved and brought into my family what an amazing set of good news for the world. And many times it gets lost on us. We forget this is not a legend. It's not a fable. It is recorded history of people who were eyewitnesses to things that they couldn't believe. But they wrote them down to say these amazing, miraculous things prove that Jesus is who he says he is. Because everything he promised he was faithful to complete. He did everything right down to his resurrection. He told them he was going to do it, and then he pulled it off. And in our day today, ladies and gentlemen, we still live in a time where in society teaches us this, where however and wherever you grew up, you probably learned this, to look down on other people, some other people in society. Maybe it's people you consider snobs or people that have a certain amount of education or don't have enough education, you tend to we look down on them. People that have different political views than you, I know I'm getting all up in your business right now, that we say, that's why, that's what's ruining our country. And you say, well, the reason I feel that way is because it is. That's what they're doing. You know, like We feel that way. There's, there's some grading um, measure stick that we say, we're superior, they're inferior. 
Look, we're better, they're less than. Look at what I've accomplished, what I've done. Look at my kids, look at my family, look what I have. And I'm telling you, guys, this is just another way of going back to saying, we're going to try to fix ourselves. We're going to try to save ourselves. We're going to try to self-justify. It's about self-righteousness, not righteousness given from God. It's me, it's Will trying to make Will look good. It's you trying to make you look good. And the Christmas story says, stop all that. That's not what it's about. Now, when we start following Jesus, yes, there's obedience steps, but you don't work your way into the family. The door's been swung open. Why? This is the good news. You get accepted. You get loved in. It is the grace of God, His acceptance that He extends through His Son, Jesus, for all who are willing to come. And Jesus wants to extend that same kind of love and grace to other people. I want you to see here today that these, this seemingly boring Genealogy is dripping with the grace and mercy of God everywhere. And you and I can be a part of this family. We can be a part of this genealogy that it continues to this day of those who are connected to, that are a part of the family of God, that we get to be a part of, children of the Most High God, as we place faith in the Son of God. You see, Jesus wants us to see that all people, He wants us to see all people the way He does to love them as he does. My challenge to you today, especially those of you who are already followers of Jesus today, who is it that you're going to reach out to this week to invite them to be back next week to be a part of this Christmas story, the origin of the Christmas? There's so many people that have no idea what the origin of the Christmas story is all about. Where, what is the, where did it all come from? Where, what is the, the, so the foundation upon which it's built? It's so important for us to understand this and to invite other people to understand this too. And more importantly, to invite people to come to know Jesus himself. Who is that person at work or in your neighborhood that you work alongside that frustrates you, that you tend to look down on, you say, that person's a snob, I would never invite them to church. Maybe, I hope you hear it today, looking at the genealogy, all kinds of people that would say there's no way God would include them in their family, in his family, but he did, and he did it on purpose. What's implied there is nobody gets excluded, and we're not going to be the guard at the gate saying, you get in and you don't. We're going to invite everybody. We're going to cast the net wide and big. And I want to encourage you this week to get outside of your comfort zone. Invite somebody that you otherwise might never invite to say, hey, next weekend, I'll invite you to come. Christmas Eve, are you doing anything? Come with us. We're going to the 3 o'clock, 4.30. We're coming to the 6 o'clock. Come with us. We'll come get you. We'll give you a ride. Make that bridge. Help them to see God loves them and wants to include them too. And for those of you who are not followers of Jesus Christ, and there's an ache in your heart to want to know God, to be close to Him, to have an intimate love and personal relationship with Him. I hope you hear today, His good news for you is that He loves imperfect people, just like me and just like you. Here's our application prayer today, and I want to encourage you, if you've never asked Christ into your life, that today be the day that you say, God, I'm going to make good on your good news, and I'm going to step over the line of faith I'm going to trust you. I want to become your child today. And here's what I'm asking you to pray. Simply, Jesus, thank you for including imperfect people like me, like you, right? That's all of us, right? In your family, help me to show grace and mercy to those around me by sharing your good news with all kinds of people, even the kind of people that aren't necessarily your kind of people, okay? Because God was always including people 
that weren't necessarily his kind of people. It wasn't exactly Jewish people that were trying to follow all the rules. Even the Jews didn't follow all the rules. So he was always stretching out his arms and drawing people closer to him. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.